Well, good morning, Grace Church. Hope you're doing well. I want to make an encouraging announcement before we start. It appears that in the near future, we're going to be able to be meeting in person for our Sunday services in a local park. We have a reservation on Harry Griffin Park in the amphitheater there. And as soon as the governor gives his approval <clears throat> and the county and the city of La Mesa give their approval, we'll be able to be there. And it looks like that may happen quite soon. So we will let you know what we hear, but it'll be very exciting to see you face to face and worship our God together once again. Until then, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 45. We'll also show the verses on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 45. The book of Genesis confronts us with two massive realities. First is God. The Genesis 1 reality is God himself speaking and a universe leaps into existence, billions upon billions of stars. And then this God fills this earth, this planet, with an abundance of creatures. And at each stage of his creation, he declares it's good. And then he, he creates the crowning achievement of his creation, men and women made in his image. And he looks at all that he has made and says, it's very, very good. That's the first reality. An all-powerful, good God ruling over his creation. The second reality is our sin and suffering, the Genesis 3 reality. In Genesis 3, human beings plunge the entire race into sin as Adam and Eve rebel against God. And since then, we suffer sin and sin's consequences. We get sick. We develop diseases. A global pandemic spreads as we speak. And one day... One day we will die. On top of all that, we sin and are sinned against. We experience conflict in the marriage, conflict in the family, conflict in the workplace, sometimes conflict in the church. Some people experience severe forms of sin, being abused by others. And now things break down. Now things don't go our way. Now the job disappears. Now the finances get tight. Now life is often hard. Two realities in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, all-powerful, good God, ruling over everything. And Genesis 3, our own sin and our very real suffering. My question is, how do you hold these two realities together? How do you hold them together? Do you? And if so, how? How are we to hold together God's all-powerful good reign and the reality of our sin and grieving suffering that we often experience? Well, through the life of Joseph, we are given an answer, one answer for how to hold those things together. Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. I mean, sure, he, he shared his dreams of his brothers and family bowing down to him someday, but the brothers didn't have to hate him for it. 
Yet now look at his rise to power from enslaved prisoner to Pharaoh's right-hand man. People are bowing down before him and he's leading Egypt through this terrible famine. And now suddenly, there they are. Ten of his brothers standing before him. He hasn't seen them in 20 years. And now they're standing before him to buy food, to buy grain. They're actually these ten. They're his half-brothers. His one full brother, Benjamin, was left back home. They don't uh, recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And so he tests them to see if these brothers have changed it all over the 20 years. He puts them into prison for a few days and then releases all except one, the brother Simeon, and tells them, don't come back here until you come back with the other brother that you told me about. Well, eventually, eventually, the brothers and their father, they run out of food and they have to come back to Egypt. The father reluctantly parts with Joseph's full brother, Benjamin. And when they come back, Joseph tests them further. Are they still the jealous, spiteful, malicious brothers of old, or have they changed? Joseph has them, has them over for a feast and lines them up in exact birth order to their great surprise. And then he gives his full brother Benjamin five times as much food as the other brothers get to test them. And they're fine with that. They're happy. And then a more difficult test, Joseph has the the special silver cup of his own slipped into Benjamin's bag. And as they are leaving, he creates this pretense to arrest and then potentially enslave Benjamin. Well, what will the brothers do now? They sold off Joseph into slavery. Why not Benjamin too? Are they different now? Well, this time, the brothers tear their garments in grief and they they eventually come and fall down to the ground before Joseph, one of the fulfillments of his dreams that they would bow down to him. And Judah, Judah, whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery, Judah now makes an impassioned plea. Take me, take me instead of this brother Benjamin. My father will die if anything happens to that boy Benjamin. So take me, take me instead. And at this point, Joseph has seen enough. And he says in chapter 45, verse 3, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. I mean, you better believe they were dismayed. Put yourself in the brother's shoes here. You'd wanted to kill Joseph 20 years ago. The only reason you didn't kill him because you wanted to make money off of him. The last time you saw him, he was being carted off into slavery into Egypt. And now he holds your life in his hands. He's the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Fortunately for them, Joseph has a Genesis 1 theology functioning for him. 
pick it up in verse 4. Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into, e- sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in, this, in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Did you notice that, that Joseph views what has happened to him in two ways? First, he fully acknowledges the responsibility of his brothers. Verse 4, he says, I am Joseph, whom you sold, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, you sold me here. They sold him, they sinned, no excuses. That's one explanation. But at the same time, Joseph provides another explanation. He uses the Genesis 1 wide-angle lens to see an all-powerful and good God at work at the same time. Verse 5, God, he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant, even more strongly in verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, ultimately, you might say, but God, God ultimately sent me. So one event, two explanations. You sold me, God sent me. The brothers sinning horrendously and God ruling sovereignly, both happening at the same time. The theological term for this we have said previously is compatibilism. Our free, culpable, moral actions are fully compatible with the absolute sovereign reign of God. Or, as we put it previously, God is able to use sin sinlessly. Now, there is mystery here, isn't there? For God never sins. He does no wrong. All that he does is righteous and good all the time. And our moral responsibility, our moral culpability, is never, ever lessened by God's sovereignty. So, did the brothers sin greatly grieve God? Yes. Was Joseph deeply hurt by their abuse? Yes. But over the past 20 years, Joseph has come to process their Genesis 3 actions with a Genesis 1 view of God. He says the same thing in chapter 50 after their father dies and the brothers are, their brothers are frightened. Joseph says in verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant the evil for good to bring it about 
that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, he's not saying that God was somehow able to squeeze some good out of the situation. He's not saying either that their evil actions were actually good. No, they were evil actions. What he's saying is you did real evil, but through that evil, God worked to accomplish his good ends. That's compatibilism. In other words, Joseph's life teaches us that in a world of evil, God works for the good of his people. In a world of evil, God works for the good of his people. But we might say, okay, that was true for Joseph's life, but what about my life? Is what Joseph knows here the same thing that we should know about our lives? Well, let's answer that in a slightly roundabout way. Realize where all of this is going. Realize the purpose that Joseph gives here. Three times, in fact, he says it's to preserve life that God sent me. But in particular, in verse 7, he's a little more specific. Look again at verse 7. He says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So God is preserving, he's saying, the Israelite people from famine. Now, why? Why was God acting to keep these descendants of Abraham alive? Here's the reason. Because God had promised through Abraham would come blessing to all peoples, all nations of the earth, a blessing we know by the name of Jesus. So God was preserving this people here in Genesis to ultimately bring forth a savior and to bring the salvation he accomplishes for his people. But think about how God did that when Jesus came. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested on trumped-up charges, tried in a sham trial. The only truly innocent person ever to live was condemned and executed as a criminal, crucified, hung naked as nails were driven through his wrists and feet. And of that one event, we are given two explanations by the Apostle Peter. He says in Acts chapter 2, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. One event, two explanations again. Equally true. Definite plan of God. Definite plan of God being accomplished, but you killed him, Peter says, by the hands of lawless men. So, through the greatest of injustices, God was accomplishing the greatest good, the salvation for all who will believe. Through the greatest of injustices, the crucifixion of the Son of God, God was accomplishing this great good for us. So what should we expect for the injustices and suffering that we ourselves experience? I mean, shouldn't we expect something similar? And that's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, 
verse 28, a well-known verse for many. And we know, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I like how the New American Standard Version captures this. It says, and we know that God causes, God causes all things, no exceptions. God causes all things to work together for your ultimate good, an ultimate good that is defined in verse 29, being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. That's important because how we define our greatest good is not always how God defines it. God says our greatest good is being made more and more in the kind of people he created us to be. That's what God has for you. That's his will for you. Making you more like Christ. So, yes, what Joseph knew about his life is what we should know about our lives. That in a world of evil, and a world of suffering, God works all for the good of his people. That's how we hold together that Genesis 1 reality and that Genesis 3 reality, knowing that in this world of evil, God works all. He works everything together for the good, the ultimate good of his people. A pastor in the previous century named Donald Gray Barnhouse used the analogy of a clock to illustrate this. If you've ever looked inside a large grandfather clock, maybe through the glass panes, and you've seen all the mechanisms within that clock, you, you might catch this, that there are various wheels and, and parts moving in various different directions. And some of those wheels, some of those parts are moving forward, and some are moving backward, and some move quickly, and some move slowly. And as you observe that clock, it seems impossible that all of those various parts could work together to accomplish the purpose of the clock. But they do. And the Christian life is like that, Barnhouse says. There are events in our lives that move forward. And we're glad. We're pleased with that progress. And there are events in our lives that seem to move backward. And they hurt. We don't like that. It's painful. We want them to move differently. There are events in our lives that that happen quickly, and we rejoice. And there are things that move very slowly, and we become impatient and want them to happen in our own timing. But all these events forward and backward, fast and slow, are like that clock. They work together for a purpose. They are worked together by an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving Father for your ultimate good. And knowing that, knowing that can have a dramatic effect for you. Knowing this reality can bring you comfort, comfort in whatever you face. We could highlight peace and rest and hope, but I'm going to encapsulate those in this word comfort. It's a comfort, I think, first of all, for what we ourselves have done. You know, Joseph's words in Genesis 45 are intended to comfort his brothers about their sin. Verse 5 says, 
do not be distressed, Joseph speaking, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me. He's comforting them. And this may be the primary intended effect upon the original audience, those Israelites who had come out of the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin, perhaps here God comforting them to know that despite their sin, God had worked for good. You see, in no way should we minimize our sin, but we can be comforted similarly. Parents, we sin in our own parenting. And so we should acknowledge our sin. We should repent, turn from our sin, and request forgiveness to to transact forgiveness with our child or teen requires us to repent and request forgiveness. That's genuine restoration. But you can be comforted about your sin as well. Comforted even about your weaknesses and parental failures. Comforted knowing that those things, your parental sin and weakness and failure, they don't have the final say. God does. He will accomplish his purposes in your children's lives. Or or husbands and wives, this can comfort you as you are aware of sin that you commit in your marriage. Again, we must own our sins. We should confess, turn from them, repent, request forgiveness. But you can be comforted knowing that your sin will not hinder God's purposes ultimately. Oh, you may hurt your spouse and you must acknowledge that. But God can and will work through sin, even in your marriage, to make you both like Christ. And be comforted for whatever regrets you're thinking of right now as you're watching. God does not minimize sin at all, and neither should we. But neither are his purposes hindered by our sin. Be comforted by that. But not only that, not only that, be comforted also for the the sin of the things done against you, the, the suffering you've experienced, the hardship that happens to you just in general. Be comforted here. You know, Joseph experienced a lot of sin and hardship in this account. His brother's sin, but if you recall, Potiphar's wife lying about him, the cupbearer forgetting about him, the fact that he then languishes in prison for years. There's a lot of of sin and suffering happening against Joseph. And during those events, Joseph did not know what God was doing. He didn't know the, the good God was achieving in the moment. He couldn't have told you in the moment, hey, I'm being sold into slavery because there's good God wants to do through me in Egypt. He couldn't have told you that. He couldn't have told you, yeah, my master's wife is lying about me because God wants to position me in prison for the good he wants to accomplish through me. He couldn't have told you that. He couldn't have told you that the cupbearer forgot all about me for two years, two long years, just because it wasn't time for Pharaoh to have his dreams yet. He knew none of that. He didn't know why in the moment all those things were happening. Now, when he was being used by God to rescue Egypt from the famine, perhaps the pieces began to click together. But, but I imagine it was only, only when Joseph saw his brothers that he really understood more fully 
the good God had been accomplishing, as he said, God preserving for you a remnant. Only then could he fully use that Genesis 1 wide-angle lens and acknowledge with the great hymn, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Only then, friends, did he get the full picture. We might never in our own lifetimes get the full picture. But in our own frowning providences, do we also believe there is that smiling face governing it all? Can we trust in our own experiences, in our own hardship, can we trust that there is that smiling face ultimately working for our good, though we can't see it? You see, I know there are hard situations and there's genuine suffering happening in our midst. And I'm not trying to minimize any of that. I really am not. And I know that for those of us who are not suffering yet, we will. It's inevitable. As Mark Talbot has written, quote, stories like Joseph's remind us that appearance and reality are different things. Reminds us that appearance and reality are different things as we live through them. The appearance to us can be God is absent, God is silent, God does not love me, God does not care, when the reality we find in this passage is very different. I mean, you might be experiencing sin in the workplace or some other context where you've been slandered or opposed. You might experience or have experienced sin against you in your family or by some friends or maybe in in the church. Or just general hardships when we get sick, when the job is uncertain or the job is lost or the finances are tight or maybe even when a loved one dies in those times listen in those times appearance and reality can seem like two very different things and so in those times we must know what is reality in those times you must use the genesis 1 wide angle lens you need that perspective to know that in a world of evil in a world of suffering in a world of hardship god works all for the good of his people oh friends what comfort what peace that can bring to us for our past for our future uh, for our present and even for our future a comfort even for our future. I might almost want to use the word confidence here. A sort of theologically informed confidence about the future. You know, I can dread the future sometimes because it is so full of uncertainty from my vantage point. From my vantage point, the future is very uncertain. And so I play this what-if game. I roll the what-if scenarios. What if I get sick? What if I infect my wife? What if I infect my children? What if I infect Sung's parents who live with us? And the what-ifs can consume me. Can you relate to that? 
What if this happens to your finances? What if this happens to your job? What if this happens to your kids? And there are a lot of uncertainties from our vantage point. But listen, all of those uncertainties are wrapped up in this massive certainty. God will be there and will work it all for your ultimate good. As Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, once said, quote, the storm, the storm has a bit in its mouth, like a horse's bit that would turn the horse any which way. Today we might say the storm has a steering wheel. In the storms of life to come, the storms of life to come in your future, for the believer in Jesus Christ, they will have a bit in their mouths. They will have a divine hand on the steering wheel of that storm as he works it all together for your good. You must arm yourself with that mentality in advance, friends. Equip yourself in advance for biblical reality when appearance and reality seem different to you. And so be comforted and even confident. You see, though, that Genesis 3 reality of sin and suffering is still very real for us. He is still the God of Genesis chapter 1. All-powerful, all-wise, perfectly good. And when His Son returns, He will make all things new and wipe every tear away from the eyes of His people. But until then... Until then, you must know and you must be comforted by the reality that in a world of evil and suffering and hardship, he works all together for good. Let's pray that we would live in light of that right now. I want to pray. I want to pray in two different categories. I want to pray first for those who are watching but have not yet trusted Jesus Christ. As Romans chapter 8 talks about, these realities are for those who love God, who have been called according to His purpose. That's a calling upon you right now to repent and believe this good news. So turn to Christ, I urge you. Father, I pray for those who have yet to believe they would come to you turning to you because you are the God of all comfort. You are the God of all hope. And such hope is only found in you. Meet them right now, I ask you. And meet those who have believed. Meet those who do love you and are called according to your purpose. Grant grant this comfort for what we've done and for what's been done against us. And grant this comfort, even confidence, for what lies ahead, that we could face it confidently because we know you, because we know the God who has the storm under full control and who is accomplishing his good in and through our lives. So help us, we ask you, in Jesus' name. Amen.